Thank you for tuning in with us at Bayou City Fellowship Tomball, a community that's radically focused on Jesus. God's plan has always been to unite us with Himself and other believers through His Son. Our new life comes with a calling that urges us to radically love others in new ways. Join us as we go through the book of Ephesians in this sermon series called Unimaginable. Amen. Have a seat. And give the Lord praise one more time as you sit down. That was incredible, incredible. Thank you for leading us so well by city worship uh, into the presence of the Lord. Um, wow, special, special. Well, welcome to Bayou City Fellowship, Tom Ball. My name is Kevin Barr. I'm the lead pastor here, and, and we are starting a new series. It is a new start in many ways to the school year, and we're going to be studying the book of Ephesians together. And if you've never studied the book of Ephesians, let me just tell you what, you are in for a treat, a journey, excitement, and let me just tell you, you should be here every week. You should have a pen, a piece of paper, notes. You should have your phone ready to take notes on if you don't write things down by hand anymore because you can't read your handwriting because you never learned in school. That's fine. School's starting. You can need to sign back up. You can. Um, and, and my goal in our study of Ephesians are, is, is a couple things. One, um, I want you to grow more deeply in love with the Word of God. That's, that's what I want. I want you to grow more deeply in love with the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I want us to grow more deeply as a community, as a family built together in Christ. And those are big goals. Those are big goals, and they're things that only God can do. So I'm going to read a little bit for us, pray, and then we will jump in. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. I'll just read a little bit for us, and then we'll start. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mercy of his, the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time unite, to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance. We have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we shall acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter that Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus. Thank you for the wisdom that you packed into such a short body of work. And Lord, I pray that as we study your word more deeply, as we study this letter that Paul penned, that we would gain greater insight into who you've called us to be and what you've called us to do. 
I pray that the truths of this book would work deep in our hearts, that we would unpack the truths that are here and that our lives would be changed forever. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was, I was reading about um, things that were forgotten, uh, things that, 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 were, that were true that someone had but were forgotten in the process and just kind of lost uh, the significance on the person. One of those simple items was this, a forgotten lottery ticket from Christmas that he later cashed for $8.9 million. This uh, occurred just this past year. This um, article was from March 16, 2022. An Oregon man helped turn a lottery lesson with friends into a multi-million dollar payday. So he was at Christmas, they were at this lodge, he invited some friends to come and he taught them how to purchase a, a lottery ticket, a, a mega bucks ticket. Uh, for $25, and when you bought this particular ticket, it lines you up for the next several months, next 13 months, you would purchase that upcoming ticket. And, and so when the first kind of round came um, in December, he looked at it, checked his phone, and saw that he didn't win anything, and so he, he says he kind of forgot about it. And a couple months later, he happened to be back at that same lodge with some similar friends, and he checked his phone, and he saw that it says, uh, all of a sudden it says, customer service uh, notification popped up, and so he needed to call customer service. And at that moment, he called, and he was now he just to be the jackpot winner of eight point nine million dollars. Uh, he decided to take that out in payments over the next thirty years, and so he will be receiving two hundred thousand dollars a year for the next thirty years of his life. That is a great forgotten reality that you got brought into. But how often, how often in life are there great truths, great things that are true about you that are forgotten by us? And because they're forgotten by us, they're unaccessed by us. See, if he hadn't known that he needed to make a phone call and to follow up on things that were already done for him, he would not know the blessings that he could receive. He couldn't know the benefits that were in store for him just because he he didn't think it was that big of a deal. Is that true in your life? Is it true in my life? How often do we miss the blessings of a good friendship? Do we miss the blessings of our kids? Do we miss the blessings of our family members? Do we miss the blessings of, of, of all that God has provided for us because we just get going, we just get moving, and if we forget the significance that can be unlocked if we actually understood the gifts that we have received. Well, the reason I start there is for this simple purpose. We're going to be looking at the book of Ephesians, and I will tell you this. The book of Ephesians is filled with the blessings and promises of God that are open for you and open for me. And these things are available to us. They are available to us. They are significant, but for many of us, many of us, even though this this letter is locked in our Bible. For many of us, we haven't unpacked it. We haven't unearthed it. And therefore, we don't know the blessings that God has for us. You don't know the significance that you are in the eyes of God. You don't know the plans that he really has for you. And you're may, you may be, you may be not living in the fullness that God would have for your life. The book of Ephesians is one of the most significant letters that was written. I'm just going to read you a couple quotes from history of different people that have read the book of Ephesians. In 1903, um, Armitage Robinson, which is just a great name, so I had to say it. Armitage Robinson said, 
that Ephesians is the crown of Paul's writings. Barth writes that Ephesians is among the greatest letters under the name of the Apostle Paul. Raymond E. Brown says, among Pauline writings, only Romans can match Ephesians as a candidate for exercising the most influence on Christian thought and spirituality. P.T. O'Brien says, the letter of Ephesians is the most significant document ever written. For John Calvin, it was his favorite letter. William Barclay says, it's the queen of the epistles. And what's fascinating as we, as we look at this letter and really unlock what's there is that it can really transform your life. Former president of Princeton University says this, he says, to this book I owe my life. His name was John McKay. I saw a new world. Everything was new. New experiences, new attitudes, new uh, views towards people. I loved God. And Jesus became the center of everything. I'd been quickened. I became alive. See, this understanding what you have in Christ can literally change everything about you and everything about me. If we actually know what it says and experience what it's calling us to experience. So as we study it, I want to give us really an overview as the start of the book of Ephesians. What does is, what is this letter cover? What, what are the origins of this letter? And we're going to look at the origins, the, an overview of it. And then I'm going to give you from, from this text a view of the Trinity, three things that we have from God that need to be unpacked. So in terms of an overview, let me just start with the beginning. The letter starts out with, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to saints who are in Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. In ancient letters, just if you've, if you've ever never really opened it up and studied it, in ancient letters, they begin letters different than you and I. As we write a letter, we write at the beginning, the top of the note, um, the recipient, uh, to mom, to a kid, to Jim, right? We write the recipient. At the end of the letter, you write your name, correct? We, we, we all together on this one class? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, if you've ever written a note, you're like, Kevin, I don't write notes, I send text. Fine. But if you were to write on a piece of paper, that's how you would write it. In ancient letters, they started with the author. And so that's what we have here. So who wrote the letter to the Ephesians? Well, it begins with um, the author writing who wrote it. His name is, is Paul. Paul. And he gives a designation about himself. He says, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He gives himself that little title, that idea. And then you have the audience after that, to the saints who are in Ephesus. So you have the author and the audience right there at the beginning of the letter. So if you ever ask yourself the question, how do I know the, the title of a letter? Well, often it's right there at the very front of the letter. So it's, a, it's written by Paul and it's to the Ephesians. Well, who is Paul? Who is this guy? Why should we spend time studying what he is saying? Well, Paul might surprise you. As we studied the book of Acts this past year, we got more details into his life. Uh, Luke kind of travels with Paul and gives us a lot of details about what Paul did and who he was. And I'm going to give you a snapshot of those. The first is Paul wasn't a believer at the beginning of his life. He was a Jewish man. And he was rising in, in Judaism. And he um, was, was so high in Judaism, he was exceeding all of his contemporaries. And then it says at one moment that he began perse persecuting Christians. In fact, he held this, uh, the, the coats of the men who stoned Stephen. 
So he was a persecutor of Christians. He was not a follower of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 9, Paul had an amazing moment, the most significant moment in Paul's life, when Jesus Christ intersected with his life. It was his Damascus Road experience. When, when Jesus intersected with him and, and blinded him with a bright light and asked him this question, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul, I want you to live a new direction life. Why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, get up. I'm gonna send your life in an entirely new direction. And Paul, from this point forward, becomes a missionary and a church planter. He travels all around the Mediterranean region, gathering up groups of believers and, and planting churches. One of those churches that he planted was the church at Ephesus. In Acts chapter, nine, uh, in Acts chapter um, 19, you get some of the details of this church planting moment. Um, and as Paul is writing this letter, just a little bit of details, Paul is, is, is in prison as he's pinning this letter. You can see some of those details as you look later in the book. In Ephesians 3, 1, he references the fact that he's in prison. And if he, in, in chapter 4, verse 1, he also references that he's in, in prison. And also in 6.20, Paul references once again that he's in prison. There's, there's um, four letters that are thought to be Paul's prison epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. From those four letters, Paul is in prison because he is preaching the gospel. And at this moment, as he's, as he's sitting in prison, looking back at these churches that he has planted, he begins writing letters to encourage them to correct some things that, that they are doing. And this is one of those letters that he's writing in prison to help correct them, to help shape them. And here's what's fascinating as you think about the person of Paul. I mean, these are ancient letters. Um, most people date this letter of Ephesians to somewhere around 60 to 62 um, AD. Somewhere between 60 and 62. Um, what's fascinating, and, and, and I'm, I'm thankful to N.T. Wright who, who pointed this out. He says this, Considerable, consider some remarkable facts. Paul's letters in a standard modern translation occupy fewer than eight pages. So all of Paul's letters, 13 of them, it's about eight pieces of paper, eight pages. He says, even taken as a whole, they are shorter than almost any single one of Plato's dialogues or Aristotle's treatise. It is safe to say, though, that these letters page for page, have generated more comment, more sermons, more seminars, more monographs, more dissertations than any other writings from the ancient world. It is, it is as though eight or ten small paintings from an obscure artist were to become the most sought after, most studied, most copied, most highly valued, more so than all the Rembrandts, Titans, Monets, or Van Goghs of the world. Here's what N.T. Wright is saying. He's saying from these eight pages, you have more, more studied time written on, spent on these words than every other great masterwork. It is worth your time to not just say that is an interesting tidbit, but to really sink deep. Because people that have studied throughout the world said this book, these words are transformative if we truly study it. The words of Paul, who was a non-believer that became changed by Christ and began planting churches. It's significant. And his writing to the 
the city of Ephesus. Ephesus, you can visit it today. It's, it's in um, what's modern-day Turkey. It's, it's right there on the Mediterranean Sea. You can go and you can see the ruins there of, of the cities, the sculptures. It was a, it was a, uh, a prominent city in Rome. It, it, it was a, a city really there on Asia Minor. It represented the Roman uh, position and authority, a base of operations right there at the point of Asia Minor. It was a significant city, and that's important to note. Uh, just like Houston is a significant port city. Lots of uh, travel and trade come through Houston. In a similar way, Ephesus was a port city. Lots of people flowed through there. And Paul knew that if he could shape a port, that gospel would spread. And so he's writing to the Ephesians because he, he spent time there, roughly three years there, during his third missionary journey. He had a lot of fun while he was there. I mean, he was... Unusual miracles, uh, he was uh, merely arrested, there was a, a riot in the city. It was a very exciting time for him in Ephesians. And, and the, the city of Ephesus was probably one of, the, one of the cities that Paul spent the most time at in his ministry. It says, Paul, an, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, I'm doing this because God chose me, because God sent me on this mission to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, that's an interesting word. Saints. How do we use the word saint? It's usually someone that's performed a miracle, that's someone significant, someone over there. And that's kind of modern day how we think of as a saint. But in in New Testament times, that's actually not what saint is. It means someone that is saved by the grace of God. Someone who's put their faith alone in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins. That's who a saint is. Paul, writing to the saved people who are in Ephesus. I want to give you a moment of the structure of the book. It's one of the easiest books to outline. That's why I like teaching it. Um, There's six chapters. The first three chapters of the book are, are focused on beliefs or doctrine. The last three chapters of the book talk about our actions, our behaviors, or our duty. Uh, Other ways people define the book are this. It's our calling, chapters 1 through 3, and our conduct, chapters 4 through 6. This is what you have in Christ, and this is what you do as Christians. It's a very simple way to think about the outline, and it's so important that he does this. is because this. Fundamentally, Christianity isn't a religion about what you do. It's about what's been done for you. See, if you're wondering, what is the Christian story about? What is it like to walk with Christ? Christianity is fundamentally about what God has done for you before you do anything else. And if you get that reversed, you are in a world of hurt. Because what you'll be trying to do is earn the pleasure of God. Earn God's goodness and grace for you. And you'll say things like this, and I hear this all the time. Well, I hope God forgives me for that. Or I hope God overlooks that. Or I hope God um, blesses me for that. And, and, and what Paul is going to show us is, 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 is the Christian doesn't operate that way. You have all that you need in Christ. You have everything that you need in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. We'll look at that in a second. And from that place, that reservoir of every gift that you need, you then move. And if we get that reversed, we start trying to 
to earn the favor of God. But Paul is going to tell us in Ephesians, that is not how it works at all. You have everything you need in Christ. You are a saint in Christ. So this is really, really important. In this section, in 3 through 14, we see Paul get carried away. He wants to drive this reality home, that you have everything that you need in Christ. And in in verses 3 through 14, it is a long run-on sentence uh, one theologian writes it this way. It's almost like um, a snowball effect where, where Paul wants you to get excited about what everything that you have. It is one ridiculous run-on sentence. It's like your typical high school cheerleader. You're like, how was yesterday? Oh, it was so good. We went to this place, we went to this place, and we went to this place. Did you meet Jenny? She saw her over there. And like just an explosion of words. And you look at that young girl and you're like, you're going to have to put some periods there, um, some commas. You're going to have to slow down because I don't know what you're saying. That's what Paul is doing. He has one huge run-on sentence. And at the beginning of this sentence, he says this, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Here's what he says. God has put you into a sphere. A sphere where you can experience the full blessings of God. He's put you in a place where God can fully and freely bless you with everything that he's given to you in Christ. And where has he placed you? Over and over and over again in this letter, you'll see it repeated again. He says he puts you in Christ. He puts you in the one place where he can meet every one of your needs. He puts you into Christ. He puts you in the one place where he can bless you fully. He puts you into Christ. He puts you in the one place that is safe and secure for all of eternity. He puts you into Christ. And in Christ, what we see is he places us there. He shows us the work of the Trinity. The work of the Trinity that planned for us, that saves us, and seals us. You see the full work of God at active in, salva- in the salvation of humanity. And so we're going to flesh out those ideas because that's really the outline of, chapter, of verses 3 through 14. That you are eternally planned by God. That you are presently forgiven in Christ. And that you are promised a future by the sealing of the Holy Spirit. In verses 3 through 6, we see the, the, that the plan for salvation was eternally in the mind of God. Verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. He is trying to get you excited. He says, bless God, praise God, be excited, thank God. Why, why? It says because he's given you every spiritual blessing. That word every in the Greek means every, all kinds, Everything. What does it mean? Every spiritual blessing. And where are those blessings? They're from the heavenly places, in the heavenly places. What does that mean? That these blessings are spiritual and they're eternal. 
God has given you eternal spiritual blessings. And I say that, some of you go, so they're imaginary blessings? That's what you're telling me? They're spiritual, so they're imaginary, they're unhelpful? Is that what he's saying? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying these are spiritual, meaning you can't buy them. They're given by God. You can't purchase them. You can't finagle your way to them. They are spiritual. They are given by God. And secondly, they're in the heavenly places, meaning they're not going to be lost. Everything else in life will eventually fade and go away. Some of you, I remember, you remember the first time you moved into that apartment, the first time you moved out of your parents' house into that apartment, and you thought it was amazing. I guarantee you, you go back to that apartment now, you're gonna be like, how did I survive in this like postage stamp of a a location, right? How did I live there, right? I mean, it it seemed like such a great deal and you trace along a little bar, you you bought maybe your first car and you're like, this car was amazing. It was a 1975 Pinto green. It was great, it was awesome. You were so excited to buy that car. Trace it a couple years, it gets rusty, the wheels fall off, it costs you a lot of money, and you're like, I can't deal with this anymore, I need to get rid of it, right? Every other blessing this side of heaven fades, goes away. These blessings cannot be lost. And what are the blessings? I'll give you three words from this section. You're chosen, you're predestined, and you're adopted. You're chosen. It's a great important word that means you're here you're selected and he picked you and when did he do this choosing he chose us in him when when circle the word underline the word when when did the choice happen before the foundation of the world it's in this moment that paul is going into the mind of god and saying when do you think that god's eternal plan of salvation began did it begin at the first sin did it begin at the first mistake? Is, that when, is everything just kind of like a, a cleanup operation that God is doing? Like, oh, crud, something happened. Let me try to do this. No, no, no. God had this plan of salvation worked out in his mind before the foundation of the world, before there was a rock formed, before there was a star in the heavens. God had planned out his choice of saving people before the foundation of the world, before it started, he had a plan. It says that he predestined us. That means he he picked people. That means to predetermine, to to know beforehand. And and, and when when you look at these two words in particular, chosen and predestined, some of us get a little bit nervous. We're like, what? What do you mean? I'm just reading Ephesians, okay, so let me just be clear on that, right? And this selection was not based on capacity or potential. It wasn't. It was before anything was made. It was before you and I would do anything. It wasn't based on capacity or potential. And you see this with the nation of Israel. In the nation of Israel, they were his chosen people. In Deuteronomy 7, it says this, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you or, and chose you, for you were the fewest among all peoples. But it was because that the Lord loves you and is keeping an oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, from Egypt. What, what is he saying? 
God's choice is not about capacity or potential. He chose you. Why? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. It's a love that, that a mother has for her kids. I would have said father, but sometimes fathers don't love this way. But mothers always do. They love their kids regardless of what they contribute to the life of the family. They just love them. And God set his special love on people. He decided to love people, and he decided to adopt them as sons. Now, adoption, that word, is actually kind of prominent in, in, in Roman writings. Um, oftentimes, senators would adopt children if they didn't have um, sons or daughters that they felt would represent the family name well. And so they would adopt a particular child to represent the family well in the future. And so there was a significant person that had accomplished something. Um, a, a senator, a wealthy senator, would adopt that child, and they would receive all the inheritance of the senator so they would represent the person well. Is that how God adopts? Actually, actually no. Paul will write in 1 Corinthians, he says, he says, not many of you are wise, not many of you are noble, not many of you are of good report, but, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, he chose the things that aren't to nullify things that are. He says, God doesn't choose you because he's like, this is going to look good on my resume. Like, I got that guy. I got that girl on my team. It's not about that. It's his love. And it's not based on your performance. It's because he genuinely, genuinely loves you. John Stott, in his um, commentary, says this, Scripture nowhere dispels the mystery of God's selection. And we should beware of any who try to systematize it too precisely or rigidly. It is not likely that we shall discover a simple solution to the problem which has baffled the brains of Christians for centuries. He says this, the fact that God selects before everything began, we won't solve this morning. That's what he's saying. And it's not meant for you to divide over. It's not meant for us to feel like, hey, I'm good, I'm on the good team, you're bad, you're on the bad team, you were picked, you weren't. We don't know this. Those are decisions made in the mind of God. We don't know why, we don't know how, but we trust the heart of a loving father. That's what we do. Um, I, I was watching Iron Man 2 with my, uh, with my wife recently. We are previewing it to see if we can show our kids the movie. And... Uh, and so we're watching, and there's one moment in, in the movie where, where Iron Man, he's having this sickness that's kind of going throughout his body. And uh, this is more detail than you want to know, but you can go watch it with friends later on. Uh, this sickness is going through his body, and he can't heal himself. He doesn't know what to do. In fact, the thing that's, that's in his heart to save him is actually killing him. And so he begins watching this, uh, these old movie clips of his father presenting um, all these creations that he has had in his life and all these great creations. And at one moment, as he's watching his father talk, he, the, the camera kind of cuts back and, and he says, Tony. And this is weird because he's just talking about other things, but in this moment, he's addressing his son. He says, Tony, everything you need for your future is right here. He kind of references this model that he has. He says, if you do this, this will change everything. And he looks at his son and he says, but listen, you are my greatest creation. 
At that moment, you're like, this Tony Stark character, which you followed the character, he's like a playboy, he's kind of a mess. But suddenly those words of the father to say, I I planned for you. This will help you in your future. And these are the resources that are gonna bring freedom. All of a sudden, it melts Tony's heart and it melts my heart as I'm watching it. Because when you know you're planned for, that there's a father who loves you who knows everything about you and says, yeah, I'm ready for you to come with me. It's incredibly inspiring. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says this, I believe in the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterward. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I could never find in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So I'm forced to accept that great biblical doctrine. That's how we hold God's choosing of us. We don't know why. We are thankful that the Father looked at us with special love. We are placed, we are chosen by the Father before time began. And then it says, that we're forgiven in the Son. Verse seven, in him, that's Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, heaven, things in heaven and on earth. Two words I want to pull out from this section, although there are many. The first is this, that you are redeemed. That means you're bought. You're bought and paid for. What the word redemption literally just means is an act of, of purchasing. And, and the reason it's, it, you, the Bible uses that word is, is, in many ways, that's how we think about sin. When someone does something to you that makes you upset, what do you say? We say, you owe me. Like, you owe me an apology. Or we say something like this, I'll pay you back for that. Like, we we, we use this this kind of exchange imagery when we think about it. We feel like when someone sins against us, it's like something was taken from us and and something is owed back. We got this debt-debtor relationship when it comes to sin. And what the the Bible is saying is, yes, there there is a debt that's created in the world. And there's a payment that's due for the debt. And it says that Jesus, Jesus paid the debt. He died in your place for your sins, forgiving every one of your sins. He did it, and it's by grace. That's what it says. Grace is unmerited favor. You didn't earn it. You did nothing for it. It is something that you get, and it was at great cost to Jesus Jesus Christ. And you know the significance of the gift when you know the significance of the cost. Uh, when Hillary and I got engaged, um, I was a poor college student. Uh, so I didn't really have a job, I was running, and so I needed to scrape together all the money I could in order to buy a ring. And so uh, being part of the track team, they would have per diem that would be given to the athletes as we'd go to races. Uh, the per diem was meant to buy food so you could eat. Well, that was my only source of income. 
And so I'm like scraping by, saving per diem to buy a ring. And that summer came up, um, and we, I, there was a couple races around, and so I was a professional by that point in time, and so I, I would win a race, and I would just like stuff that money right over here. I'm just like, okay, money, you are going towards a ring. And I like scraped together all the money I had, on, and I'm just like, this is it. And I, I, I called my sister. I was actually living in, in, uh, in Park City, Utah at the time, training. And I, I called my sister in Houston. I said, I need you to buy me a ring in Houston. And these are all the dimes I have to buy it. <laughs> and my sister goes, I will do my best. I will go find something. And, uh, and so she finds it. We work it out. And then I'm like, okay, here's all my money. Get all my money to her. They get the ring. They fly it. We were in California. It's flown to California. My mom brought it to me. Everyone, the whole family was going there in that little season. And, and I have the ring, and I'm like, you are everything that I've earned for my life. You are worth more than me. And when I got down on my knee, I said, this is the best I have. This is the best I have that I'm giving for you. See, when, when God sent his son, he sent his best. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He's the perfect sacrifice. It is God in flesh come down, sacrifice given for you. Do you ever wonder if God really loves you? Look at the son. Do you ever wonder if God really cares for you? Look at the son. Do you believe that God wants you as part of the family? Of course he does. He gave his son for you. He gave his son eternally to purchase for you, to pay for every one of your sins, to forgive you of everything that you've ever done, and to bring you into the family. That's what he says. You're adopted. You're my kid now. You're in my family now. You're totally, completely forgiven And just as one more solidifying promise on that, he says, I promised a future for you by putting the spirit in you. God the Father originates the plan. God the Son initiates its working. And God the Spirit empowers Christians to believe and walk with him. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that you who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And in him, when you heard the gospel truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we shall acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. He says, I I gave something to every believer demonstrating that you're mine and no one else has claim on you. He says, I sent the Holy Spirit to live inside of you as a guarantee of your inheritance. When When does someone receive an inheritance? It's when the owner dies. When Jesus died on the cross, he sent the Spirit to live within us 
so that he could redeem us, so that he could be, and it was a sealed promise. You would seal ancient Roman documents with a rubber seal. You would put it on a letter, and it would be signed, sealed, and delivered to uh, the recipient so that they could open it up, and it was theirs. He says, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, and the only way that you are, that seal is going to be broken is when you step into glory, when God brings you back and comes, says, opens it up and says, you are my treasured possession. You are mine. I purchased you. I brought you into the family. You are now mine. And when God grabs you, he never lets you go. In John 10, Jesus says, my father is greater than all. No one can escape from the father's hand. He says, when, you, when you've come, you've received the spirit that is an inheritance promised you. You are sealed. You are his. And I, I love what Spurgeon says in one of his sermons. He says that God predestines and that man is responsible are two things that few can see. See, what it says in verse 13, although all these promises were in the mind of God, when did they become real in you? Verse 13 says, when you believed. And so what you have here is things that happen in the mind of God and a responsibility within man. And here's what Spurgeon says, that God predestines and that man is responsible are two things that few can see. They are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory, but they're not. It is just the fault of our weak judgment. The two truths cannot be contradictory to one another. These two truths, I do not believe, can ever be welded into one upon any human anvil, but one, one day they shall be in eternity. There are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the mind can, shall see them and pursue them the furthest, but would see that they don't converge, but, but they do converge somewhere in eternity, close to the throne of God. So that God predestines and calls people to himself, that he set it from eternity past, and that you are responsible to respond to the calling of God are two things that seem separate, two tracks, but Spurgeon says they do converge, somewhere near the throne of God. So when will all of this be reconciled? In heaven. And when you stand before God and say, okay, you chose me and I chose you and how did this work out? And God says, yes, that's exactly what happened. Okay. Well, who was responsible? God's like, me. Yeah. But if I didn't respond well, well whose fault was that? That was, that was on you. Okay. So you chose me and I'm responsible to choose you and these are the gifts that have in Christ. Yes. How does it all, did you believe? Yeah, I believed that you died in my place for my sins, I believed. Then you're my kid. And don't worry about all the details of how I work this out in my great tapestry. You just trust me. Because I'm a father who loves you. I sent my best to save you. And I've sealed you, you're mine. And when you believe that, when you buy that, let me tell you what. Those are spiritual blessings that no job security could ever give you. Those are spiritual blessings that, that no inheritance this side of heaven could ever give you. There is no amount of money that can make you feel that loved, provided for, 
cared and protected. They're spiritual, but they're real. And you need them. And they're yours in Christ. As we close, I want to give you a couple challenges as we really study the book of Ephesians. The first one is this. If this is all new information for you, you've never really dissected this, I'm gonna encourage you to go on a journey. And I'm gonna give you an option of three commentaries you can think about reading. The first one is really heavy. Like it's about three inches thick. It's by Harold Honer. It's called Ephesians Exegetical Commentary. Change your life. It's thick. A smaller one uh, is by John Stott, his Ephesians commentary. Great resource. F.F. Bruce has an older commentary, which is another great one. And Daryl Bach, um, uh, one, of the, one of the professors at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, has a seminary. So Honer, Stott, Bruce, or Bach, one of those commentaries would be deeply helpful as you study this book. So one part of the journey is this. Actually go and dig. There's more to mine in this book. Number two, spend time praising God for what he's done. I pulled out several large words in this text. Would you spend time journaling saying, Lord, thank you that I'm adopted. I have a family. Thank you that you picked me. I didn't deserve it. Thank you. Thank you that you've redeemed me. You've sent the Son to pay for my sins. Thank you, Lord, that you sealed me. I have a promised future, a hope that can never be lost. Spend some time praising God for what he has done. I want you to take a moment right now and just bow your head. In the quietness of your heart, Why don't you spend some time thanking God for what he has done for you? Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope that you feel encouraged. To stay up to date with our current sermon series, you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you would like to find more ways to get involved with the Bayou City family, visit us online at bayoucityfellowship.com or download the Bayou City Fellowship Tomball app to find community in the body of Christ.